Hi, you're joining us for our podcast from August the 8th. So going forward, we are going to be doing things a little different here on the podcast version of our worship. Whereas before it was typically our entire worship, we are going to be cutting it down to just the scripture, the sermon, and the benediction. You are free to join us on the line at our YouTube website, where we do have more or less the entire worship. If you would like it in its entirety, please reach out to our church office and let our secretary know that you would like a CD copy of our worship. Those are more or less completely unedited. The only thing I do is I go in and raise it so that the levels are the same across the entire worship. I'm sorry if this causes any confusion uh, going forward, but we're just trying to make sure that we are correctly following the terms of our CCLI licensing. Have a wonderful day. May God be with you. Our reading today comes from Luke 14, 25 through 33. And today I am going to be reading out of the New King James Version. Now, great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not first sit and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going to war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for conditions of peace. So, likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. Amen. As my wife can attest, I never undertake a home project without going either over budget or over time, so it seems. I am sure I am not the first person to have discovered this. I am sure that many of you and your spouses have similar stories to tell. I mean, come on. You start working on something and then figure out, I don't have the right tool, or I don't have the right part, or there's a problem I didn't foresee until I removed something, or it's just my lack of experience. You know, I, I went into a project this last fall thinking, oh, this will just take me a, an hour or two. I just needed to change the drain on the right hand of my kitchen sink. I mean, I just got to go get the parts. I needed some pipe wrenches, and I could do it, right? 
So we called the landlady and we let her know. And she's like, and we, I told her, you know, I'm happy to fix it because I knew the other option was she was going to come fix it or her husband, but I was happy to do it. She's like, okay. She sent us money and pipe wrenches. Whatever you have extra, use for pizza, she said. Three days later, a half dozen trips to Home Depot and nearly ripping my arm out of socket, all the extra money was used on a second set of parts because I had to change both drains. Yeah, I never did get that pizza. Now, if I'd been more experienced, I would have more thoroughly checked the problem. I would have understood that the, the nuts that held the drains tight on both sides were cracked and would have let her know that at the beginning. I would have known that you put WD-40 on the threads ahead of time and it'll make your job a lot easier. I would have known that you gotta put a whole lot of plumber's putty in there and just scrape off the extra when it squeezes out the sides. That's how a lot of do-it-yourself jobs are. Yeah, you go in thinking you can do it pretty easily, but if it's the first time you've ever attempted the work, you end up finding there's a lot more to it than you thought. And, well, it costs you in time and energy and resources. But you get better. I'm sure the next time I have to change a drain, it will have to go somewhat better, right? Uh, we'll see. I mean, the drains are still working, so I haven't completely messed them up. Now, some projects, though, are a lot bigger than that. I mean, it's, it's easy to look at little ones and say, oh, I can get better at that. Or you look at, like, say, building a house. After you've built a couple houses, I remember that with building cabins at camp. I got better at just kind of figuring it out. Some things you'll never know what to expect. It doesn't matter how much planning, how much experience you have, you still don't expect to do things, like raising kids. I have never thought I would need to say, stop licking the window. Or toilet seats don't go around necks. Or what happened last night, okay, I'll go get you the boo-boo ice, but next time you go to Kiss Honey, maybe don't bang your passy into her hard enough to give yourself a fat lip. The dog was fine. <laughs> but you know, raising children is generally a joyful thing. There are projects that are a lot harder. Projects that we undertake that could end up at the undertaker. Would you be willing to take on that kind of project? One that would threaten your very life. One that would threaten your livelihood. That would threaten the life of those you love. Your own children. I need to step back 500 years. To a priest who I know I say his name like every month or so in this church. But you can't ignore Martin Luther. Sorry. He was the match that lit the bonfire of the Reformation. And he was soon followed by other reformers, John Calvin, Ulrich Zwingli, many others. Now Zwingli was in Zurich, and he lit another fire unintentionally. Some of Zwingli's students thought he wasn't going far enough. Sure, he had taken over the cathedral of Zurich, he had 
literally broken out the stained glass windows to put in plain glass windows. He had painted the entire sanctuary white, hiding all the ornate painting that had once been there. To this day, when you enter a sanctuary, even like ours, it's called Zwinglium after his actions. But they said, you're not going far enough, Ulrich. You are still stuck in the old ways of the old church. You are okay with using the systems that have been built at still being someone in power. You're unwilling to go farther to follow what Jesus really commanded of his followers because that would not be comfortable for you. You should go, baptize, be baptized into Christ again. Renew your covenant with God. Zwingli partially agreed. He decided, though, it was his old students that needed to be pushed beyond what they were comfortable with, which was their third baptism in which he had them held under until, well, they weren't. And thus was built another fire, the radical reformation. The people who decided that the, reform, the reformers never took it far enough, that we had to completely tear out the roots of the old ways and rebuild the church in the, in the way that it appears in Acts. It wasn't an easy 200-some years after that. Starting in 1517, that was when the 99 theses were nailed to the door. Up to 1708, the birth of our denomination there were no less than 116 wars fought in Europe. That is a war, a little more than a war every two years. And of course, a lot of those wars were a lot longer than two years. In 1708, there were actually four of them being fought around the birth of the brethren. There was also peace. There were deals made and attempts to avoid war or to at least alleviated a little, the most famous being the, the Peace of Westphalia, in which, for the first time ever, freedom of religion was allowed as long as you were Roman Catholic or Lutheran or Reformed. If you were Anabaptist, sorry, radicals were continued to be persecuted. They would continue to be left out in the cold, and they would move around from place to place looking for a prince who would allow them to settle for a time. Inevitably, though, that prince would either die or change their mind or be taken over from, and they'd have to move on again and again. The easiest way to live in those days was just to belong to the same faith as your local prince or duke or baron or whoever. To step out of that to follow the call in your heart, that was dangerous. Even for those within the system, it was dangerous to step out. Like it had been for Ernst Christoph Hachmann Hachnu. I'm glad I'm, you guys are just far enough away you're out of spit zone for that one. Now, I'll, I'll just call him Hachmann after this. Hachmann was greatly concerned by a letter he received from a group of friends. You might not have ever heard of him before, but he is the spiritual grandfather of our tradition. He was an evangelist for a reactionary movement in Protestant denominations called pietism. 
It had started about 40 years before. What had happened is the Lutherans and the Reformed Church spent so much time arguing with the Roman Catholics and among each other that when they came up to preach to people, oops, there went my pencil, when they came up to preach to people, they would just sit there and lecture them in dogma and church law in order to keep people from thinking that the Lutherans or the Reformed or the Roman Catholics were right. That was the whole thing. And to people, these pietists, they said, that's not the point. Your church has become academic. It has become sterile. There is no movement in the spirit left. Philip Jakob Spainer was the first person to really write about this. He's one of my theological heroes. And, and he wrote out six points where he thought he could improve the Reformed Church in a book called Pia Desideria, or Pious Desires. Now, he was generally ignored by the church, the leaders of the Reformed Church. You need to hear how radical these are, though. Number one, Christians should engage in intensive Bible study. I know this is crazy. Second, the lay, that is non-clergy members, should be fully engaged and active in the life of the church. Four, third, Christian life is no different than daily life. I know this is just some of the craziest things you have ever heard. Fourth, there should be freedom in religious matters. Now for the wonky things. Fifth, Theological training needs to be reformed to, re to reflect the importance of pious living and not simply preparation for, well, the sixth point, which was that preaching should not simply be rhetoric about following church or theological rules, dogma. Instead, preaching should be edifying. That is, it should educate and lift the listener to work towards higher morals and beliefs and thoughts. I know really that none of these are very surprising to you. These are all things that, let's face it, they are the bones of the Church of the Brethren. They are the bones of the Methodist and the Baptist. In the long run, Spainer's work really did change Christianity. But Spainer was not universally loved even by the pietist. There were some who said that just like Zwingli before him, he had not gone far enough, that he was too comfortable working and living in the systems that had been built from the ancient medieval times, that he was fine staying in power and privilege. This group wanted to separate off just like the Anabaptists did, they wanted to create a new church that reflected what they read out of Acts in the New Testament. Then those days, they were called separatists. Today, we call them the radical pietists. And there was a man named Gottfried Arnold who led this group. He was a scholar and the father of the modern-day field of church history. And he looked back at the history of the church he looked back towards what he read in the writings that happened just after Jesus, the ones that after the letters, 
to see what kind of church it was. And he wanted the church to return to that, a rejection of hierarchy, a rejection of liturgy, a rejection of formalness for the idea of worship being informal and spiritual. He wrote, the church has always flourished best under the cross. It was never the majority and the persecutor, but rather always the minority and the persecuted. Hawkman was a friend and a student of Arnold. And by listening to his friend, he was convicted and he went about preaching. Well, that's what he did. He became an itinerant preacher. And he always preached three things. First, that he felt he was called to preach. Second, that there was a spiritual church that was above and beyond the physical church. And third, the kingdom of Jesus was at hand. His work gained him over 30 imprisonments. And many, but many people were still drawn to this cheerful, smiling preacher. Many of them settled in the small town where he sometimes lived in relative refuge to study and pray. Swartzenau on Ader. It was one of these friends who had come and lived in the same area as him that had written him this letter. He was currently, or Hoffman was currently in the prison at Nuremberg. Now he had met this friend, this young Alexander Mack in Marienburg about three years earlier. He was only 25 at the time. So when he wrote this letter, he's only 28. He was struggling with his faith. He had been struggling a long time. Back in where he grew up, his dad was an important member of the Reformed Church there. He was also an elected official. At one time, he was the mayor. He was a respected miller. He was a respected businessman. But he had unexpectedly passed away. And so had Alexander's elder brother. And all of a sudden, the young Mac found himself in a position he never wanted. He didn't feel anything at that church. He didn't want to be in charge of town. He wanted something more. And one day, he found himself walking to Marienburg and listened to Hawkman preach. And his soul was lit on fire. Soon, Max Mill became a gathering place for pietists from all over the area. All over the area, as many as 50 people cramming themselves into his mill to hear the word preached, to pray together, to talk. Until, of course, the authorities crack down. This is what happens when you're a radical. Authorities crack down on you. So Max sold his property, and he moved his young family, his wife, his two young children to Swartzenau, where the authorities were more lenient. There, he and his wife, Anna Margarita Klein, and a small group continued to gather, to study, to worship. And as they read the Bible, especially the Gospel of Matthew, they became convicted that they needed to organize themselves into a proper church. They looked to the work of Spainer and Arnold. They prayed, they talked. They discussed with their Mennonite neighbors. They invited Moravian preachers into their homes. 
they decided that baptism by full immersion was the only way they could truly enter into communion with Christ. Alexander Mack Jr. later wrote, Finally, in the year 1708, eight persons agreed together to establish a covenant of good consciousness with God, to accept all ordinances of Jesus Christ as an easy yoke, to follow after their Lord Jesus, their good and loyal shepherd, as true sheep in the joy or sorrow until the blessed end. These eight persons united with one another as brothers and sisters in covenant of the cross of Jesus Christ as a church of Christian leaders. That's when they then wrote this letter to their friend, to their mentor, Hockman, to ask for his advice as they considered going through this same rite as their Anabaptist neighbors and risking what came with that. Hockman sat in his prison cell and considered everything over the last 200 years. The perils of those who chose the Anabaptist lifestyle. He also considered his own life and those of radical pietists like him. It was dangerous enough to speak these things, let alone to go through an action. He also considered what it had become of the various groups out of the Reformation. He looked to the Lutherans, the Reformers, the Anglicans, and said they are but another Catholic church. They may say slightly different things, but they still wear the robes. They still handle the sword. They are still too concerned about worldly power. He looked at the radical Reformers. Those who had burned bright and hot at the beginning, but had since exited the main stage. Their remnants had decided to gather around the teachings of Minno Sims. They were now doing their best to live quiet, separated lives in a harsh world that hated them. He may have respected them, but he still didn't care for their particular style. Because he was so concerned about dogma. He was so concerned that people were not listening to the Holy Spirit that talks to every individual. He looked at the Mennonites and said, there is no room for interpretation. There is no room for religious freedom. You are so concerned about the rules. Hockman was worried about his friend. He was worried about his friend, his friend's family, he was worried about his friend's soul. He didn't want him to walk down a path that would lead him away from Christ and back into the mistakes of the old ones. And so he wrote back to his friend, warning him what the road ahead looked like, of the trials, of the tribulations, of forks that would lead them astray from the path of Jesus. And he quoted Jesus from Matthew 14. A warning to all those who would follow Jesus as they should. Count well the cost of discipleship. Like a seasoned builder does before undertaking a harsh project. They really did take Hockman's warnings to heart. But they still continued in their meditation on the Bible. 
on listening to the still small spirit of the voice, the still small voice of the spirit speaking within their hearts. And the words of the community gathering together and praying and worshiping as one. And they came to the conclusion, what they would have to still do. An anonymous writer wrote, as Christ our head and keeper has lowered himself into the water, so must we of necessity as his members be immersed with him. They drew lots. And to a name forever shrouded in history, one of them was selected to baptize Mac as their leader. And then Mac turned around and he baptized the other seven. His wife, Anna, and fellow believers, Andrew and Johann Nachir Boni, Johann and Johanna Kipping, George Griebe, and Lucas Vetter. A new church was born in that water. Now, I could spend all day walking through the rest of the history of Mac, because I love history and history stories. I could sit here and tell you how they had an explosive growth, followed by the crackdown of the authorities. How they spread to the north and the south. How they experienced their first falling outs as they couldn't agree whether a person who was a member of their new faith could marry someone outside the faith or not. I could tell you how the Anabaptists looked down on them and saw them as wishy-washy because they weren't holding fast to the rules that they agreed on. I can tell you that the Pietists looked down on them and said, you are too sectarian and too dogmatic. I could even detail how Peter Becker took a small group across the ocean to the colony of Pennsylvania starting a flow that would find the entire group leaving their homelands to start a new life across the waves. That all happened. Life was not easy for their decisions. Life was not easy at all. They continued to be pushed out. They continued to be pushed around. Before it, they had lived into their faith. They had done what they wanted and listening to the Spirit. I'm not sure you can ever prepare for that. I'm not sure you can ever prepare to walk down that kind of road. Your choices are you can look back at history and see how it has happened before, which in many ways is what Hoffman did for them reminding them to look back, to see what had happened to those who had walked this same path, to see where they had stumbled and failed, to see where they had gone right. Mac would eventually take the letter, and from it he took that quote of Count Well the Cost, and he wrote a poem which happens to be his only, his only hymn that we still have today, which I know we don't know it well, but I could not put that in today's worship. But it's a good reminder to us that engaging in faith is not always an easy path to take. It's not easy to know where you're going but you have to do it with your eyes wide open. 
and count well what possibly could happen. And when, when you make that vow, when you enter the water, a promise that you are going to do your best to continue that walk. Over the next few Sundays, I'll be continuing this series about the forefathers. There's Alexander right now. And as we do the walk, we'll see that it isn't always easy for those who are inside and for those who are on the outside. There are those who will struggle to redefine the church, to redefine what it means to be brethren, who will fight against the problems that exist within. There are those who will be so convicted by their faith that they will walk into war zones. Those who will deal with those who will consider them enemies. We will find the church grows and shrinks and grows and shrinks as it fights to define what it means to be a follower of Christ in a world that doesn't always do a great job at it. In a church that struggles to even understand what that means at times. We are a part of that story. 313 years removed, 14 years, it's 2021, 14 years removed, but still a part of that story as we consider where we walk going into the future. I want to conclude with Mac's own words, which are on the front of your bulletin for you to look at whenever you want. He said, are you resolved, though all seems lost, to risk your own reputation, yourself, your wealth for Christ the Lord, as, ne as you now give your solemn word? Count well the cost. Go out today thinking back over the last 300 years, knowing many of you have your own stories, your own struggles of trying to live Christ's call in this world, I urge you, you've made that solemn vow. Keep that walk going. You've done well thus far. We can only keep going forward. Count well the cost of faith. Amen.